Section 3 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2. The Beginnings of the Catholic Revival, Part 1. Paul III, Alexander Farnese, 1534-49, was qualified neither by his antecedents nor by his character for the task of reforming the Church. But forty years of license during his cardinalate had not altogether blunted his perception of what he might help to effect as a pope. Very soon after his election he gave proof of his insight both into the spiritual needs of the Church and into the shortcomings of his predecessors. But unfortunately none of his responsibilities, besides the duty of upholding the temporal power, seemed to him so obvious and so pressing as the traditional papal obligation of providing for his family. Thus he succeeded in obtaining for his descendants a respectable place as Dukes of Parma and Piacenza among the sovereign families of Italy and Europe. The really determining force of his versatile foreign policy was not religious bigotry, from which he was personally free, nor even his sincere desire for peace between the great contending powers. It was, in a word, dynastic ambition, which was, paradoxically enough on occasion, stronger in him even than the ties of blood. Not even his hatred of the ascendancy of Charles V, established by the issue of the Smalcaldic War, nor the suspicion probably entertained by him that the imperial policy was privy to the assassination of his own son, September 1547, prevented him from seeking in Charles V a support which the dynasty of the Farnese could not spare. In the religious policy of a pope actuated by such a master motive, it would be futile to seek for any inner consistency. The mind of Paul III, though enlightened and in some sense unprejudiced, was not moved by spiritual zeal, and thus the religious history of his reign is full of startling contrasts. The earliest attempts in this period to regenerate the Church of Rome without breaking the mold of her existing forms are not associated with any opposition, conscious or unconscious, to the labors and aspirations of Luther and the reformers who followed in his path. In Italy, the first manifestations during the 16th century of a desire for a spiritual revival in the Church represent a natural reaction against the prevailing fashion of unbelief. At the Lateran Council in 1513, Leo X had to assert, by a constitution, the doctrine of the individual immortality of the soul. Yet neither the circle in which Leo had himself grown up, nor that which dominated Roman society under his rule, could lay claim to orthodoxy. Though Lorenzo the Magnificent and his academy had never defied the teachings of the Church, yet their own point of view was essentially mystic and undogmatic. Leo X's personal interest in divinity has probably been underrated, but even in the case of a pope it is permissible to deduce his inclinations from the company which he keeps. Thus certain pious and reflecting minds began to fear 
lest the most spiritual elements in the work of the church and of her priesthood might either meet with disregard and derision, or come to be dissociated from the distinctive doctrines and practices of the Catholic religion. At some time in the course of the pontificate of Leo X, 1513 to 22, an oratory of divine love was founded in the church of St. Sylvester and Dorotea in Trastevere at Rome, and its services and exercises were attended by a congregation of between 50 and 60 members, including the future cardinals Contarini, Sadoletti, Ghiberti, and Carafa. The precedent of this foundation was speedily imitated at Vicenza and in several other towns, and in the reign of Adrian VI, the movement of the Oratorians naturally threw out further fibers. Under Clement VII, the dire catastrophe which befell the city of Rome together with the Pope deprived the Renaissance in Italy of its very center and focus. Nor did Rome for a long time, or the Italian Renaissance, ever recover from the shock. Thus an influence in the main antagonistic to a restoration of the spiritual life and energy of the Church was permanently impaired. But for the moment this effect could not be measured, and after the sack of Rome the representatives of the Renaissance and those of the religious revival were alike fugitives from its walls. Not a few of both the one and the other group found their way to Venice, a city whose own power was already on the wane, but which alone among the communities of northern and central Italy had remained untouched by war or foreign invasion. Theological opinion enjoyed much freedom of utterance here, and the intimate mercantile relations with Germany had given rise to a very warm interest in the new Lutheran doctrines. At Venice, then, and in the neighboring University of Padua, there met several scholars and ecclesiastics belonging to the school of thought associated with the oratory of divine love beyond the Tiber. Hither came, at least in passing, John Pietro Carafa, Bishop of Chieti and Archbishop of Brindisi. Born of an illustrious and influential Campanian family, and trained in the best learning of the Renaissance, he had been early introduced to the papal court, and had earned distinction as nuncio at the courts of Ferdinand and Henry VIII. In Spain he had been fired by the spectacle of a genuine religious revival. Leo X had afterwards availed himself of his theological acumen when the Lutheran heresy underwent examination, and he had been consulted on the schemes which lay so near to the heart of Adrian VI. Under Clement VII, Carafa had withdrawn from court into a convent, though the Pope had proposed to confer upon him an extraordinary disciplinary authority over the clergy resident at Rome, May 1524. But even during the dark days in question, he refused to despair of the future of the Church. Gasparo Contarini was a Venetian-born and an eminent senator of the Republic, which he had also served on foreign missions. To whatever degree his views of the cardinal doctrine of justification may have approached Luther's, his doctrinal opinions seem to have been as broad as his conceptions of ecclesiastical government, while his conciliatory wisdom and lofty independence of spirit were alike indigenous to the city of his origin. 
other noble Venetians sympathized in the highest aspirations of the scholars of Padua, but none more ardently than the nobleman of England, Cardinal Pole, whose royal blood and generous bearing had marked him out even when a mere student in the venerable university. He probably thought himself but a sojourner in these seats of learning and culture, when in 1534 he was ordered by his royal kinsman Henry VIII to renounce the supremacy of the Pope. After the king had acknowledged the receipt of Pole's defense of the unity of the church by an invitation to England, and that invitation had been declined, there could be no peace between them. But the early intercourse between Contarini and Pole, who together with Carafa may be said to represent the opening stage of the Counter-Reformation, was animated by no purely or essentially controversial purpose. On the contrary, as Ranca has shown, the teachings of Contarini and his school, more especially on the crucial question of justification, was in actual touch with theological ideas which at this time had penetrated into various spheres of Italian society and in their turn had much in common with Protestant doctrines proper. Least of all could these relations remain obscure at a time when the influence of the Reformation itself, besides reaching Venice from Germany, had from France and Navarre penetrated into northern Italy and had thence by way of Ferrara, where Calvin at one time took refuge, reached the Romagna and the immediate neighborhood of Rome. It thus becomes easy to understand on the one hand the readiness of Contarini and his friends to entertain schemes of reunion, and on the other the determination of the Jesuits to eradicate the effects, visible in almost every city from Naples to Milan, of the insinuating literary arguments of Juan Valdez and his disciples, and of the powerful sermons of Bernardino Ochino. Very soon after his accession in 1534, Paul III, beginning more wisely than Adrian VI, with men instead of measures, created six new cardinals, chosen without their own knowledge and purely on account of their religious views and sentiments. Contarini is said to have been the first nominated and to have proposed the rest. They included, besides Carafa and Pole, Matteo Ghiberti, the exemplary bishop of Verona, whom Leo X had honored and whom Vita sung, Federigo Fregoso, archbishop of Salerno, and Jacopo Sadoletti, bishop of Charpentras in France, both of whom had, like Ghiberti, frequented the oratory of divine love. Sadoletti, admired far and near as a type of the elegant culture of the later Renaissance, was the author of a work in which he argued that the caducity of the Church could only be cured by the introduction of a new and more vigorous discipline. Yet it was in no truculent spirit that he or those associated with him accepted the papal nomination. When announcing his appointment to Melanchthon and asking for the friendship of the German reformer, he declared himself not the kind of man in whom difference of opinion at once gives rise to hatred. The next step of Paul III was to appoint a commission consisting of these new cardinals, 
together with two other members of the sacred college, Cortese and Aleander, both of them eminent for learning, while the latter had gained reputation as a diplomatist by his exertions in Germany in connection with the bull of excommunication against Luther and the Edict of Worms. This commission was charged with the preparation of proposals in harmony, of course, with accepted doctrines and traditions for the reform of the Church. Its report is the celebrated Concilium de Amendanda Ecclesia. Contadini, the soul of the entire transaction, appears to have abandoned his original intention of demanding the opinion of all his colleagues on each head of the commission, but there was no lack of earnestness or even of boldness in their joint conclusions. The report insisted with pitiless logic upon the principle that no payment should be accepted by the Pope for any spiritual grace without the guilt of simony being incurred by him, and reflected severely on the condition of the regular orders, urging that if they were not altogether abolished, they should at least be prohibited from receiving any more novices, while those already under their care should be dismissed. It also took occasion to reprehend the spread of irreligious teaching from academical chairs and even from church pulpits. The influence of Contarini, who supplemented the report by tractates of his own, chiefly directed against curialistic abuses, brought about the appointment of special commissions for the execution of reforms in various branches of the papal administration, and the issue of bulls indicted in the same spirit. The publication of the entire report was, however, postponed until it could be laid before a general council. But to the convocation of such a council, the action of the Pope seemed logically to point both within and beyond the frontiers of the empire, in Württemberg and at Augsburg, in Saxony and in Brandenburg, in Livonia and in the Scandinavian north, as well as in England and in Switzerland, the course of events during the fourteen years which intervened between the religious peace of Nürnberg, 1532, and the outbreak of the Smalcaldic War, 1546, seemed to justify the confidence of the Protestants. In the midst of these advances of heresy, Charles V, though steadily adhering to the plan of a general council, was involved in arduous conflicts which made it necessary for him to conciliate the Protestant interest in the empire. In both the French wars of this period, 1536-38 and 1542-44, the Sultan was the ally of Francis I. The floodgates of Hungary stood open, and Austria and the Empire were in constant peril. The Association of Catholic Princes formed in opposition to the League of Smalkald, 1538, was under these circumstances wholly ineffective, and by the advice of Granvelle, the emperor encouraged a series of theological conferences between Roman Catholic and Lutheran divines with a view to finding a basis for reunion. Already at Frankfurt, 1539, the Protestants made plain their desire for a definitive settlement and refused to hear of the intervention of a papal nuncio in future discussions of the subject. The conferences that followed were looked forward to with many pious hopes, and many minds devoutly attached to the Church once more renewed their aspirations for her reformation from within. 
but the desired result remained unaccomplished either at Hagenau and Worms, 1540, or by the more elaborate efforts made on the occasion of the Diet of Ratisbon, 1541. Here failure was ensured by the efforts of French seconded by English diplomacy, and still more by the stiff nakedness of some of the Protestant princes, led by the elector John Frederick of Saxony and encouraged by Luther himself. But Contarini, too, who sped by the good wishes of Paul, appeared as papal legate, arrived at the limit of the concessions for which he was prepared on the subject of the Eucharist, and it is open to grave doubt whether his previous concessions on other points would have been ratified by the Pope. Ultimately, after the Ratisbon interim had postponed a settlement, 1541, it was decided not to submit to a future general council even those points on which an agreement had been reached, and the failure of the entire transaction was made patent by the emperor's renewal of the Nuremberg League of Catholic Princes, of which at his instigation the Pope, disappointed or disillusioned, now became a member. The schism thus seemed remediless, and in the empire the Protestant interest continued in the ascendant. Meanwhile, in Italy, under influences which had at first cooperated with the endeavors of the school or party to which Contarini and Paul belonged, a movement was already on foot which was speedily to urge the Church of Rome in a contrary direction to that of comprehension or tolerance. The pontificate of Paul III may, of course without exact chronological accuracy, be regarded as the birth-time of the militant orders of the Catholic reaction. End of Section 3